welcome to the Tough Cookie Podcast, sharing stories of amazing inspiration, hope and resilience from transplant recipients and people with chronic illnesses. And here's your host, Patricia Shades. Hi everybody, this is the Tough Cookie Podcast. Welcome to another episode. I am Patricia Shates and I am here speaking to the amazing Jaden Cummins, who has an absolutely incredible story to share with you, as all of our guests do, but I'm particularly pleased to have him with us today. So welcome, Jaden. Hi, Patricia. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I guess I just want to get straight into it and get started with your story. So um, enlighten us. Tell me all about yourself. Oh, goodness. Um, where do I start? 49-year-old, um, single dad with uh, a gorgeous, uh, soon-to-be 16-year-old boy. Um, I've been in the film and television industry for about 30-odd years, um, was was a, a professional musician as well. So I've always kind of been creative and, um, uh, you know, studied film and television production and audio engineering. I majored in film composition. So uh, always been a writer, always been a not so much a performer, but uh, but always creative. Um, so yeah, just uh, kind of living the dream, working mostly in um, I say that tongue in cheek, um, living uh, working mostly in advertising for the, the last several years. I had my own production company, um, but living a pretty normal life, happy, healthy. Um, never been, uh, you know, I'd never make it to the cover of a health magazine, but I've always been reasonably fit and healthy, never had any health issues, never had any, uh, yeah, never been in hospital, never had an operation, never <laughs> touch wood. I'd got, um, oh, I don't have to touch wood anymore. I've smashed that record. But <laughs> yeah, look, I'd, I'd, I was what you'd call a fairly normal, regular Aussie bloke, dad, um, um, li- living a fairly normal life. Yeah. So, so what changed? 2017, um, I I just got the flu. I got the normal flu type A, and it uh, it it was a, it was a nasty season that year. In 2017, I was over a, over a, or thousands of people died in Australia, um, but uh, yeah, I got the flu and it put my heart into uh, a state of atrial fibrillation, which is um, an arrhythmia. It's a fairly common arrhythmia. It's it's the most common arrhythmia actually, and most of the time it's treated pharmaceutically. Uh, which is what they did with me. They thought they could uh, knock me out, uh, knock me out of AF, back into a sinus rhythm, which is your normal heart rhythm. Um, I, I had rapid AF, so it was I was kind of up around the 180 beats per minute. And the way I described it to my son at the time was, I kind of went from a, you know, a nice regular rock beat to something that resembled acid jazz it was all over the place and there was no no timing no rhythm to it so when you're in a state of af your your organs then start to suffer because they don't get the oxygen and the blood that they need the heart's not pumping efficiently um and so things start to go awry. But when you're in AF, you normally revert out of AF back into a normal sinus rhythm, you know, within hours or, you know, hopefully within days. And generally there's no harm done. It can make you feel tired and quite out of breath, um, but it's it's something that you can generally knock yourself back out of. So they were managing that at the time, but the flu, the way it was described to me at the time was I was caught in this vicious circle. It was uh, The flu was keeping me in AF, and while I was in AF, 
I was not able to recover from the flu. So it gradually got worse and the AF lasted. Um, I was in a continuous state of AF for about um, 80 days, to a couple of wow. months. So it really knocked me around and, and I was getting to, I got to the point where I just, I could hardly breathe. I had severe pains in the chest at that point. Um, I went back and had checks obviously constantly, but mm. they kept saying that it was just the AF and I just needed to, to give it time. Um, but my body wasn't playing along. I did. I, I was running mm. out of time and no one knew it at the time. Uh, they tried cardioverting me, which is uh, basically a forced or a planned uh, defibrillation. And they did that uh, six times, tried to wow. tried to shock my heart and back into sinus. But uh, each time that failed. Um, and finally, I got to I got to November, mid-November, and I, I went in to my local hospital and just complain. I could hardly breathe. I had to stop every hundred meters and, and catch my breath. Uh, and it felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest. And they, you know, they, they were about to send me home again. They did another cardio version. They were about to, they were going to change my drugs. I had my boots on, the cannula out of my arm, and they were about to send me home. This was on a Tuesday. And they said, uh, and I said, this, this pain, like I, I kept saying it and I could draw a circle around mm. on my chest where this pain was. And finally, one of the doctors said, look, we might just keep you in and take a look at that. So that decision, you know, pretty much saved my life. I was, um, I was given, put through the ringers the following day, angiograms, uh, echoes, lots of tests and things. And then they saw that my heart was in end stage failure. Um, your wow. your EF, which is your ejection fraction, and that's the amount. That I'm, and I'm sorry if I'm to those that know all of this. Um, the ejection fraction is the amount of blood that your pump, the heart pumps out every single time it beats. So generally, most people's ejection fraction is between 55 and 60 percent. But with a healthy heart, that means every time it beats, it pumps off about 55 to 60 percent of the blood that's held in the heart off to your organs supplying them with oxygen and all those wonderful things. And it retains about 40%, 45% to maintain the integrity of, of the heart. Um, mm. All of that happens kind of out of the left ventricle. And so when they did my echoes, they saw that my ejection fraction was down to about 12%. Um, wow. And so I only had a matter of days to live. So they were looking uh, immediately at what their options were the, they started a dialogue with St Vincent's immediately, and thankfully St Vincent mm. said yes, they would they would take me in. Um, but things escalated, and uh, my kidneys failed, and my liver failed, um, and things like you know because they're a living organ, you don't realise my skin mm. failed. Like I just turned grey, um, yeah. and we, so that that last forty eight hours that I can remember, I was just incredibly sick, and they escalated and. Um, uh, in ICU and put me onto ECMO, which is that kind of, you know, that's that full last resort of life support. Um, and that's the last thing I remember. I remember I was with my sister and, um, you know, the day before I was joking with my son, I'd already been told that I'd had severe, severe cardiomyopathy and mm. was given a pretty grim prognosis, but I hadn't said anything to my son. I'd I didn't know what to say to him and I didn't know I, I needed to get it clear in my head because two days ago I just had the flu and now I'm being told I've only got days to live and they're talking about heart transplants and all sorts of things. And then the next minute I'm in ICU under code blue with, you know, 15, 20 
people around me all going crazy, um, putting yeah. me on ECMO, which is this pretty, it's highly invasive life support. And they put me on yep. awake. So I was awake during the whole process, um, which is highly unusual. Most of the time when your heart fails to that extent, you're unconscious and you don't know. Um, but I, they, for whatever reason, there was benefit in them being able to put me on ECMO while I was awake. So they hooked me up to the whole thing, highly invasive. They put in big hoses up through your groin and exit out your stomach. It's, it's pretty full on. And I remember a lot of that. And I looked at my sister who was being dragged out of ICU at the time. And I just said, look after my boy. And, and that was my last memory. Um, I woke up about two and a half, three weeks later in St. Vincent's with an artificial heart. So, wow. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So I woke up in December with Christmas decorations up and all this machinery in a different hospital and having had some pretty full on, um, coma dreams and, uh, um, oh, the, the official terms escaped me, but, um, uh, delirium. And yep. uh, so there was a lot of stuff going on in my head and I had no idea and I couldn't move as well. Obviously, I was fully paralysed because I'd been in a coma for that long. Um, yeah. You lose that severe muscular uh, muscle atrophy and, and you lose control of it. So I couldn't move my legs. I couldn't. So yeah. it's a lot to take in. Um, but when you come out of a coma, it's not like, you know, you wake up what you see on television. It's, it's very much a slow burn. So it took yeah. a while to process uh, what was real and what wasn't. And I, I think the day that I realised what I'd put my family through and that it was Christmas and all this stuff, it hit me all at once. Uh, and I pretty much spent 24 hours in tears. It was just, it, it was horrific. That was my kind of, that was my down day. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, I guess this has all come without warning as well. It's not like you've lived a life where you've been unwell for so long and things like this. This is Exactly. All in the space of a couple of months, essentially. Exactly. It's a lot to process all at once. It was. It was. And once I had my, you know, I call it, it was my little sook day. Um, And again, bless St. Vincent's. I just, I cannot say enough good things about St. Vincent's Hospital. Just that, that place is like a warm blanket for me. And I know hospitals have all sorts of connotations for many people for all the wrong reasons. But for me, it's like a warm blanket. I just, I love that place and feel so safe when I walk through those doors and they were wonderful. And I, I asked to see a psychiatrist and, and this beautiful woman came down and talked to me and, and just listened and just let me, you know, bawl my eyes out. And yeah, I was, I woke up with this incredible sense of guilt and and shame for what I put everyone through. It was, it was such yeah. a weird feeling, and yeah, everyone's I, telling me no. But I, I needed to. I needed to say. I just needed to say sorry to everybody, especially yeah. my son. You know, who at the age of thirteen at the time he had to sit there and hold my hand on life support, and everyone around him told him I was going to die, except my sister. Um, but uh, even his mother you know, said, look, you need to prepare yourself. Your dad's not going to make it and probably not going to make mm-hmm. it. You know, he refused to believe there. At, at, at 13, he sat there and I've got messages still on my phone from from Henry at the time saying, knowing that I was asleep and in a coma saying, dad, I know you're asleep, but, you know, you've got this, you're, you're, you're tougher than this, you, you're going to be okay. You know, it just mm-hmm. breaks my heart. I still listen to them when I need a bit of grounding <laughs> from time to time. <laughs> I listen to that and think just to remember how lucky I am. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
And what happened from from there? Uh, so it's it's December, Christmas decorations are up, and you've just come out of this coma that you've been in for a couple of weeks. Yeah, in a completely different hospital and and all these sorts of things, and you've got an artificial heart. Yeah, like, again, which I like? I never knew there was such a thing that you know. Um, so it you know, and what a beautiful little device that was. So you know, there's a lot of them coming to terms. But uh, so I, I had my sook day, and then and then you know, I like to know, okay, right, what have I got to do? So every day I was just pushing them. Every day, uh, you know, I'd see the rehab guys in, in their little red shirts come around the corner. I'd go, great. Um, everything they asked me to do, I'd do twice. Uh, you know, and I needed a plan. And that's that's again where St Vincent's was so good. They gave me. A map. Now, I, I'm not much of a planner. I don't. I'm, I'm highly disorganised. I don't know if it's the creative <laughs> streak in me or not. But I'm high, and I thrive on that disorganisation. I love it. And try yeah. and lock me into something, and I start to freak out. I hate, mm-hmm. I hate structure and anything that even resembles structure. But so for me, the the only way I could deal with this was taking it every day at a, at a time. And I literally mean my goal for the next day was to wake up and it was that simple. Yep. Um, so I, I just wanted to wake up and see my boy. That, that, that was it. Mm. So I know then I knew I had a number of things that I needed to complete. They started talking to me about, you know, this, this the LVAD, the left ventricular assist device, which is actually a, like a pump that then pumps, that plugs into your heart and does the job of the heart. So your heart's still sitting in its chest, in your chest, mm. but it's it's more or less just acting as a conduit. You know, your aortic valve's not moving. You, you don't have a heartbeat. You don't have a pulse. Mm. A very strange thing as well. Not I mean, the things we take for granted, right? A pulse. Absolutely. Oh. Yeah. Something as simple as that. Exactly. Yep. So, you don't even think about touching, you know, your neck or, or your <laughs> wrist or something and, and then just feeling it. It's just, it's just there. It's like, it's kind of like breathing. You just don't really think about it. It happens. I've so all a, of a sudden, you've got to, you've yeah. got this thing that's that's doing all of this job for you. We've got a saying in our family that uh, you know, while well, as long as there's a pulse, there's hope. You know, yeah. um, and I just jump back, just a, a little backstory that has, mm. in the last few weeks, has now actually become pertinent. Um, mm. My mum, uh, at the age of forty-four. Um, back in 1991, uh, I was 20 at the time. She, she, had, she. Prior to that, she had been healthy as well. Um, mm-hmm. She got the flu. She mm-hmm. contracted cardiovirus, um, cardiomyopathy, uh, which is viral myocarditis, which is essentially mm. the heart disease caused by a virus, the flu. Yep. yep. And she went into end stage heart failure. She was at one stage they were looking at her for the heart transplant program, um, but sadly she had a major stroke and passed away so she she passed away virtually at the same age as me I was two years older in the same hospital that I was that I was put on life support so you can imagine I didn't think about it too much at the time while I was in that room getting plugged into life support I didn't know it was life support at the time they just told me it was a pump and it was going to give my body a rest and I just thought thank god Mm. um but my sister and my father um, are now reliving history. And for whatever reason, yes. I went down the same path as mum, but I turned at some point. She went off in the other direction and didn't make it. Um, and I somehow pulled through at the end. So there was a lot of that to wow. try and deal with after I woke up and after I started 
processing yes. all of this stuff like okay and then I feel guilty why did I get why have I got the chance and mm. there's, there's so many emotions that come with this I'm again I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky yeah. um, I don't like the word tough but you know I, I cope well under most situations I'm a, like to think of myself as a typical Aussie bloke I was mm. not ready for the emotional journey that uh, that was about to play out um, and I mean was is there is there any correlation between your mother having the same thing and and you? Is there any like is there a family history? Is it is there's it hereditary not, or is it just? So far, I want to say dumb luck. It at the time <laughs> the doctors were saying that the chances of that happening are just insurmountable. It just couldn't have happened, wow. and uh, a lot happened in that twelve months while I was on the artificial heart. Quickly mm. fast forward. Um, and just in recent months, I've been undergoing, I've been part of a study with Victor Chang Institute, um, again, another incredible organisation that we have in this country, uh, and doing a lot of uh, doing DNA research. And they have traced and found, um, uh, it's called a Titan gene, and mm-hmm. it's a particular gene that I think we all have the Titan gene in us, uh, but mm-hmm. I've got a mutated strand. So it was something that I got the minute my mum and dad got together, I've had it all my life and didn't know. And what it seems to have done is made my heart, it's not, uh, I've had a perfect heart before that, Mm. but it makes me susceptible to a trigger. And in my case, the trigger was the flu. Then the trigger, if you've got this mutated gene, the trigger could be, uh, you know, obesity or lack of exercise. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be all sorts of things. Um, Mm. For me, it was the flu. You know, probably with a bit of alcohol thrown over the years as well. But um, so they have actually decided. So now we're just in the stage. Now we're going to be testing uh, my dad, my sister, Henry. So now Henry's got a fifty percent chance of having this um, this um, defect gene in him as well. But- so. And then, and that would just kind of it would, that would just give us information to yeah. you know they'll monitor him a bit closer. His heart's perfect. I've had him checked, and mm. the, the the cardiac team at uh, St Vincent's have done all the tests and echoes. He's got a perfect heart, but I did as well. So I'm just hoping yeah. that that you know it falls on the you know he comes up negative. Um, so it's a, it's a gene that's most probably come from one of my parents. My mum's not mm-hmm. here, so we're testing dad, hopefully, to rule him out and yeah. my sister as well. Um, yeah. So that's, that's an interesting thing. Wow. Um, that's incredible. And, I mean, like, it, if you, when, when Henry finds out if he's got this gene and, and all of that sort of thing, it, yeah, it's, knowledge is power. Knowledge I mean, is power. That's exactly right. It's, it's the greatest it's one of the greatest gifts you can have is is the knowledge that that this might be something that comes up in his future. Exactly. It, it, you might, I might not be able to do anything about it, but for now well, at least. But, and, but, but you can help it along, and and yeah, you know, and the thing is, so he'll get regular checks, which is great. Mm. Um, but also live a healthy life, you know, exercise, yeah, eat, eat healthy. The things that we should be doing anyway. Now yep. he's got extra incentive to to do that. Yeah. So it's you know, and then. If we know he's going to be susceptible to things like that, like just get a flu shot. I never got a flu yeah. shot. Like for God's sake, it's I, why do I need a flu shot? You know, stupid, yeah. stupid, stupid, stupid. Um, it's just one of those really innocuous things that you one just don't of those think. Things. About. I've okay. never been sick. You know, what? yeah, exactly. Beat my exactly. hands on my chest like a like a typical <laughs> idiot. Um, and even when I was at my sickest, you know, it was the it was the chemist. Um, wonderful chemist at Broadway and he said and I went in to get 
like a cold and flu tablet and I could hardly breathe. But I just thought that was, you know, oh, mate, just got a bad flu. And he said, mate, you don't look well. Go and see your doctor who is next door and who is my GP, also wonderful. And she said, no, you've got rapid AF. She got me up to the local hospital ASAP and that's where it all started it all came but that came about me going finally going okay I'll I'll suck it up I'll go and have I'll I'll go to I'll go to the full extreme and have a cold and flu tablet good on you Jaden legend (laughs) (laughs) idiot I want to say I want to say typical male but it's it kind of is I don't I don't want to be sexist in any way like that but it kind of is the the, I guess the epitome of Aussie Aussie blokedom is to beat your chest and like I'll be right you know no worries you can say stupid dumb male and I won't take offense I'm nodding my head and agreeing with you wholeheartedly so you know Henry just needs to get his flu shot you know we all need to get a flu shot but uh, you know those those sorts of things so you know so get checked when you're sick exactly exactly (laughs) you know now I'm all over it I'm jumping at shadows it's it's terrible (laughs) hey 2020 vision is perfect we can sort of see into the future but yeah 2020 vision who knew what 2020 was gonna (laughs) look (laughs) exactly exactly So the so other you've been sorry. I was going to say. So you'd been on your artificial heart for twelve months. I mean, what was life like living with that? Like it was brilliant. Like that that little machine was just a miracle machine. It was uh, that you know slowly but surely enabled me to get my life back. And um, mm. so you know, I I had a few unique circumstances that happened. So um, you know, when you're on the machine, it's it it's just it's a bridge to transplant so it just buys you time and hopefully enables your health I was too sick for a transplant basically I wouldn't mm-hmm. have survived and as it is when I had my bad surgery I, I had some downtime in surgery for a few minutes so um, which sounds really lovely and sweet um, <laughs> when they first told me I had downtime I thought oh bless but downtime yeah. means you know you you not with us you can't essentially yeah. you're gone um you're flatlined yep. so you know they mm. work pretty hard and for whatever reason I'm still here and uh you know again that wonderful team they brought me back and kept me going um and then lots of complications at the beginning but we kind of we yeah. just got through them again day by day just slowly but surely one day at a time mm. and the next hurdle and the next hurdle you know what it's like so finally, when the LVAD started, you know, really kicking in and I started to recover, mm. I was, you know, fairly aggressive in my activity and, and my, you know, I just wanted to get out there and get moving, do whatever I had to do. Um, I then started my work up to transplant, which is quite an intensive process. There's lots of tests again, as you would know, but mm-hmm. everything from, you know, physical tests just to make sure that you're going to be a good candidate for transplant yep. but there's you know there's psychology um you know sit down with the psychiatrists and you know they're not going to they want to make sure that you're of the right frame of mind that you don't go all through all of this sort of stuff and you get this precious organ and then you throw yourself off a bridge and i hate to be that blase about it but really that's what they're looking for there are so yeah. few organs and it's such a rare and unique opportunity to be able to be listed you are so lucky at that point in time even though you don't yeah. think it you really are to be listed and then to finally receive a precious organ which oh my mm. god like you know, from a heart perspective, 45, 50,000, something like that, people just drop dead every year, die from heart, you know. Yep. And of that, they do 100 heart transplants a year. 
and yeah. a good year. And such a such a tiny, tiny yeah amount in yeah. And then so that that's your opportunity. And then to get this artificial heart, there are about twenty artificial hearts walking around at any one time wow. uh, in Australia. So so to be given one of those, and mm. you know, I I you, to reverse engineer and try and end up at those numbers and to get yourself into that position is ridiculous and I kept saying to Henry like it's it's like knowing that there are 50,000 cars out on the road that are going to just conk out and not work and there's a hundred out of 50,000 a hundred of those will have the opportunity to get into a into a second-hand car and of those 20 there's 20 new cars that'll keep you that you can drive around until you get into that like ridiculous you could never get back so once I did that and realized how lucky I was I wasn't going to I didn't want to take that opportunity for granted. and So I just wanted to be the healthiest I could be. You never know when that phone call is going to come. Um, of course. So I, I was six months into my LVAD, um, you know, six months of not having a heartbeat or, uh, you know, a pulse. And I woke up one morning in May and I had a heartbeat. And it was just such, I could feel it instantly. i am just become acutely aware of my heart. And I used to listen to the, to the sound of the Elvad as well, because you know the heartbeat has got such a distinctive, very rhythmic, very beautiful, quite therapeutic when you listen to it, uh, very calming. Um, but the Elvad, you know, not having a heartbeat is it's it's a mechanical sound. You're listening to it like you're a cyborg. You put the stethoscope <laughs> on your chest and it's vzz, 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 vzz in your chest. It's quite weird. And mm. even when they take the blood pressure, you know, again they can't. There's no pulse, so they take yeah. your blood pressure via um, a, a Doppler, um, uh, where they, you know, so they it, It's quite remarkable watching it so I woke up and I had a heartbeat and I could feel my heartbeat I had a pulse so they started doing lots of tests and um it's a very rare thing for that to happen but they they were starting to watch my ejection fraction come back so when I had my surgery my LVAD surgery my ejection fraction had dropped to seven percent so it was like you know it was nothing yep um yeah when they put you on the LVAD your your heart's kind of out of commission then so it's not mm. doing anything. So your, your your ejection fraction will never change um, or yeah. shouldn't change. Mine did. Mm. started to climb 18, 20, 22, 25, 30, wow. 35. So they, at the time, they said they were, I was on all sorts of tests. I was doing exercise tests and uh, you name it. They'd, I was in at the hospital four days a week pretty much for the whole of 2018 doing tests of various of kinds you know for yeah. and different universities and different places and they were they said if my heart ef got to 45 percent, that they would look at doing what's called an explant where they would consider taking the machine out and seeing if my real heart organic heart um was able to sustain and to 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 pump on its own. So it's not mm. something we've done here before. Um, St wow. Vincent's, certainly none of the surgeons, although a couple of the surgeons, um, Dr Watts and Dr Jans at, uh, at St Vincent's had done them in Canada and overseas in London, I think, as well, mm. so, or had seen them done. So it was very yeah. rare. It was, it was a big deal. Mm. So... Um, it was sorry, my phone's ringing. Um, so <laughs> they were looking at the potential of workup for explant, and so I hit forty-five percent, yeah. and so the tests intensified. Then I hit fifty percent. Then I hit fifty-five percent, which is normal. So 
Oh my goodness! At that stage, normal. They, yeah, they they <laughs> ma- and it was a very strange thing. I'd every yeah. any time I'd go for an echo or I'd go in. I had some of the doctors would come in and have a listen, and because to hear a heartbeat and an LVAD at the same time was yeah. quite unique. Um, so you know, I felt like a bit of a guinea pig, but loved it. Like you know, mm. I knew the explant surgery was dangerous. I knew the odds. It was a much harder operation. Um, it was a lot trickier transplants they've done you know 11 1200 or something over the last 35 mm. years at St Vincent's they're they're good at them they know what they're doing they've never done an explant before so um you know it's not always great to be the first at these things yeah. but I was yeah. okay and the way every time they they'd sell it to me they'd they'd say explant is better for you because then you don't have the tra- the, the risks of transplant but then they'd change their mind and then they'd say, but the explant, the transplant's better because there are too many risks with explant. So this happened 11 times. We, oh, wow. they changed and, and all for the right reasons. Like I don't, I've not mm. got an issue, you know, even to the point where twice Henry and I had packed up the house and thrown all the food out of the fridge because, you know, once you're going in, you know that you're not going to, I'm not going to be walking through that front door again for months. So, yeah, you know, there's a real psychological thing. You close the front door, you say goodbye, the cat's gone off to whatever um, to, to be looked after and you say bye house and yep. you turn the electricity off and then you get to the hospital and say, no, we're not going to do it. So then you go home and then, you know, if you don't, the next day I was in Aldi doing a shop and I got a phone call saying, okay, we're going to reschedule it. So I had to go around and put all my stuff back on the shelf and then, <laughs> and then get in there again and nope, they've changed their mind, not going to do it again. So wow. it was scheduled the third time and finally, you know, the, the wonderful Professor McDonald from um, from St Vincent's, who's the head of the heart transplant team, rang me and he said, how are you feeling? And I said, oh, Prof, I'm pumped. I'm I'm really looking forward to this. And he said, "Well, mm. I hate to burst your bubble, but I just think that uh, I want to go the safe option and and mm. do transplant." He said, "Any any kind of failure is likely to be sudden and catastrophic." Um, and they're two words that you don't ever want to hear from your yeah, cardiologist. Absolutely. And yep. when you've got yep, the smartest man in the world telling you that the safe thing to do is to take your heart out and put another heart in, that's the safe mm. option, then the other option must have been off the scale. So yeah. I accepted it. They put me on the list. But in that time that I had the OVAD and I was doing all these things, I I climbed Kosciuszko. I, I did the City to Surf. I did the Seven Bridges. Oh, wow. You know, anytime fitness named me as their inspiration success story of 2018, I did all these things and I just had this amazing life um, thanks to this machine you know I had a couple of little strokes on it and again dodged a bullet they were only minor Um, I lost my vision for about half an hour with one of them when and when I was at Broadway Shopping Centre it's pretty scary I just kind of sat where I sat and waited for my vision to come back I I couldn't even see to dial triple O or to ring anyone because we've got an iPhone obviously I I couldn't I just had to sit I didn't want to yell out and create attention on myself <laughs> again stupid hello I've just had a stroke and that was because I'd had a salad the night before you know I'd had too much too many greens and the greens I was on blood thinners you clot when you're on the machine easily so they keep your INR which is the thickness of your blood high so that your your you know viscosity is low like it, it's um it's, yep. it's really thin and I'd gone to the pub the night before to have a 
you know, sparkling water with my mates to watch the State of Origin. And I knew they were all having pies and pizzas and sausage rolls and everything. So I stopped and had a big salad on the way, thinking that I was being a good boy. And it was full yeah. of rocket and kale and all sorts of stuff. Kale kills. It's a horrible thing. So, and I've got proof. Um, <laughs> and that, that dropped my INR, which thickened my blood. And the next day I had a stroke. I mean, stupid thing. You're just, you're living on a knife's wow. edge the whole time. And you constantly. But also, the, you wouldn't think of that. <laughs> the average average person wouldn't think, hey, I'm going to have a stroke because I had a healthy salad with kale last night. Exactly. And I've never touched kale since. It's vile, <laughs> evil stuff. I'm not giving it a second chance at the title. It had its opportunity. Wow. <laughs> Rotten stuff. Oh, my stuff. gosh. Yeah. So you'd been, you'd been put on the transplant list at this stage. Yes, yes. So what next? Around November. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, living a normal life. And then um, mm-hmm. early 2019, early one Sunday morning, um, you know, I, I was – that earlier in the week I'd, um, I'd gone and actually had a, an iron infusion because my, my iron mm. was low. And, again, kidneys, you'd know – how important yeah. that is so I had this iron infused I'd never had one before and I'd watched this kind of black molasses getting pumped into me and and I just felt like I'd I'd taken some youth pills or something I had all this energy it was wonderful <laughs> so that was on the Thursday like Friday Saturday I went to the gym I hit a couple of personal bests at the gym on Saturday morning still had energy so I went and, and, and ran around um, Sydney University um, got home, had a nice healthy lunch, went to my local pub to see um, a band that night just to, you know, a couple of sparkling waters um, yeah. and home by nine o'clock in bed. And the Sunday morning, because I'm an early riser, the Sunday morning I was I was up at about four o'clock, 4.30 and watching a bit of telly before going to the gym and I had a phone call from uh, the wonderful Dexter at St Vincent's and, um, and, and, and he just said, good morning, mate. I said, oh, "How are you, mate?" He said, "Good. What are you What are you up to?" Because he could hear the television, and he didn't jump straight into, you know, "Hey, yep. we've got a heart for you." Um, yeah. He thought I was out, <laughs> so it's quite <laughs> funny. So he heard the television. Let's in face the it, it, it never really sounded like you had much of a, a typical transplant waiting life. Like no, I was I was on death's door, yeah. <laughs> and I felt like it. There was no way I was going to the gym or visiting friends or going to the pub. I you very much sound like the antithesis. Had I not had exactly to, that, yeah, with, without that miracle machine, I wouldn't have either. So, but I guess you know Dexter and Dexter was actually the first ICU nurse to look after me when I was delivered on ECMO as well. I don't remember. Oh wow! But um, yep. yeah, so. Um, yeah, he's he's wonderful guy. So the fact that it was him that mm. rang me was um, poetic. But yeah, so I just said, yep. oh, I'm just lying in bed, about to go to the gym. Um, unless you've got something to tell me, and he said, yeah, um, look, we we think we're going to do your heart transplant today. And uh, you wow. know, your, your heart drops, and it it's uh, it's a it's a mixture because you you know yep. when you're on the list, it's it's such a surreal uh, existence and. You know, you, you are jumping at shadows and, and you try and be normal. And But every time that phone rings, you know that you're waiting for someone to die. And it's such a it's such a surreal feeling. It's the only way I know yeah. how to describe it. Like, I, I understand people would try and justify it and say, but it's not your fault and it's but, but, but. And I get that. Mm. I know that. But the fact that doesn't, like, you know that that dichotomy of, that morning in 
ICU and you know at the same time that there is another family in a different ICU somewhere having the worst day of their lives, saying goodbye yeah. to their loved one, but still going through and and honouring their wishes and giving the greatest gift that you can ever give, you know, knowing that that's going on concurrently with what you're doing now with your family, yeah. smiling, you know, celebrating hope, celebrating life. You've been given a second chance. It's it's bizarre feeling, and it's one that I'll never it's truly so understand. Yeah, I'll absolutely. I'll never get it. And you know exactly what it's like. It's just yeah, it's you can't describe it. And you're thankful, and you're yeah. sad, and you're excited, and you're petrified. All at the same time. Absolutely. And Absolutely. That's bizarre. It's it's not it's not a feeling I'd wish on anybody, but No, I have to agree there. It's definitely it's it's a bit of it's such a mixed emotional day, morning, whatever. It's yeah. You can't get your head around it. I don't think I ever I mean, I'm nine years post transplant and I still can't get my head around that. So yeah. Yeah, it's it. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, it, it it's such a beautiful thing. But you know, we we took time, and and I'd had time to think about it as well. And I'm a writer, so I, you know, I I visualise things, and I'd actually already written a script about this and about that whole process. And I call it the third act. So I'd written not my story. I just I used my experiences to put in a far more interesting story for this script. But I'd actually written the third act. I'd written the transplant, and I'd written what happened the day we got the call. So mm. it was quite funny and, and a strange writing that. And I wanted to write it just in case I didn't make it. You know, you, again, when you're on a transplant list, you know that the odds of you getting there. You know, you've got with heart one in five people won't last you know until they get a heart um so and I'd already stretched the numbers I'd already pushed these statistics far enough I didn't you know so I didn't take anything for granted I'd I got my affairs in order so to speak I'd written my son two letters the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life I wrote him two letters one to read on the morning of my operation which was full of hope but also had to say Mm. mate we don't know what's going to happen but, you know, just know that I love you and I'm, I'm always going to be your dad. And no matter what, you know, you just thank you for coming on this journey with me. I mean, oh, my God. And then. Wow. And then. So I wanted him to read that in while I was yeah. in the operation. But mm. then I wrote one if I didn't wake up. And that was the hardest one. And I gave that to my sister and that was the hardest. I just, I again, spent the day in tears writing that. It took me hours and hours and hours to write. Because what do you say to your 13, 14-year-old son, you know, all, all of life's advice that you assume that you're going to be there to give as a parent, you're suddenly now putting down on paper because there's a high chance that you won't. Um, yeah. So very emotional, but I, you know, I owed it to him to be able to do that, you know, for his kids, for his wedding day, all the things that I knew I was going to miss. Um, and oh. thankfully he never, <laughs> he never had to read that letter. Wow. And that was, that was, yeah. and it was a cathartic and emotional thing for me to do, but I'm so glad I did it. So yeah. because I'd already kind of run through this situation in my mind, I'd, I'd literally scripted it and played it out. There was, I remember there was one moment in the script where we're saying goodbye and I I wanted the last memory of me going off into surgery to be smiling and to be giving him a thumbs up. I didn't, like, it was, yeah. oh, my God, saying goodbye was just the hardest thing, hardest, hardest thing um, and highly emotional and, and he didn't want to say goodbye. He didn't want to 
kind of, yep. you know, just by not saying goodbye, he, he could prolong that moment and just have me for a few seconds, a few minutes more. Mm. And finally, when he did, he just buried his face in my chest and we just cuddled, you know, uh, mm. and uh, they had to wheel me off and he had to get in the lift and go. And, oh, God, I'll just never forget it, sobbing. But, of course. And, and I was so caught up in the moment I'd forgotten. And then at the very last minute, I remembered what I'd written in my script and I was able to look at him as the lift doors closed and give him that thumbs up and that smile so that he saw me going off into theatre confident and, and happy and, oh, my pride broke me. What was, <laughs> what was left of my broken heart of was course. absolutely yep. smashed into pieces at that point in time. Oh, but wow. It's really important for me to do. And, um, yeah. You know, and then I just touch, thank God, I didn't touch wood, but thank God I had, I got the most beautiful, beautiful heart from, a stunning person that morning um and the surgery went extremely well um I'm, I'm so incredibly lucky um yeah. i was out of surgery in five hours everything kicked on really really well um i woke up the next day i mean they told me this was on the sunday they told me i wouldn't wake up until mm. wednesday you know four o'clock wow. on monday morning i was awake um i was standing the next day on that monday i was walking on mm. the tuesday um i did i walked the fire stairs on the Wednesday from ICU with the, um, wow, with the physio team and I was out of ICU on day three and I was oh, out of goodness. hospital on day 11, which, which I heard wow. the record. So yeah. just had no, a really The odds were run. definitely in your favour. Someone's got a sense of humour. I'm still here. I don't know why, Patricia, but some sicko oh, up there has got a sense of humour, and I've just I think a lot of transplant recipients would agree with you that you know you're there for a better purpose. It's it's not. Uh, yeah, look, I don't know about anything that. but that. Yeah, look, I, I don't know. It's um, as I say, I think someone's got a sense of humour, but you know, my life since transplant has has been again. It's it's all about gratitude. I I, I can never mm. ever repay what has been given to me in any sense of the word, not just, you know, obviously financially and everything that's been invested in me from a health Mm. perspective to keep me on this planet. You know, we are so lucky in this country. My God, you hear everybody whinge about waiting lists and the hospital system and no matter what side of politics you're on, I think people just like to have a bloody whinge. My God, but we've got (laughs) the best facilities and we've got the best health system and we've got places like St Vincent's and, and Westmead and all these places like RPA. At our doorstep, we've got places like the Victor Chang Cardiac Research Institute that are just world-beating. We've got people like Professor McDonald and Professor Haywood, uh, like just the top in the world at our doorstep for nothing. You know, come on, we've got the best system in the world. We are so lucky. So there's that. I can never repay that. And obviously, the gift that's been given to me in terms of this beautiful heart. Uh, where do you start? Where where on earth do you start? So I can't. I know I can't ever repay that. All I can do is say thank you every single day, mm. and whatever format that can be in. Um, for me, I'm a storyteller, um, so <laughs> clearly I've just talked your ears off for however long. But <laughs> I, if that is my way of communicating thanks and trying to kind of affect change and to you know mm. to talk about organ donation to talk about heart health and health in general and to try and live a positive life you know be there for my boy you know that's my purpose my purpose in life is just to be a great dad that's it you know we yeah. often get confused and I've done a few talks about this where we talk about goals 
versus purpose and somehow the two get mm. aligned and or maligned and confused and you know goals change you know three years ago my goal was to have a nice boat you know a year <laughs> later my goal yeah. was to wake up the next day you know we have to be ready to adapt to whatever life throws at us because we've got no idea but your purpose who you are you know as a person as in essence who what gets you out of bed every day the thing that drives you and your mojo if you like that's that should never change you know that that is to do whatever um mm. for me it's just be a good dad um, yeah of course so I'm just trying to channel all this energy I don't sit on my hands well I've got a lot of energy and I try and I'm just trying to channel it the best most of the way 95 percent of it's ineffective because I'm so disorganized and without structure <laughs> of any kind but what small amount I can kind of funnel into something that might become productive I'm trying to focus into you know organ donor awareness and um, you know talking yeah hopefully having this chat and talking to someone like you who's been through exactly the same thing but and and worse in many ways and you know we've all got different stories but we're still here we're still telling the story in 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 order to hopefully maybe help other people who are going through it or even who aren't and hopefully who never will but you know maybe yeah. can gain some perspective about what's important in life you know because Absolutely. I, I think that's what most of us lack on a daily basis it's not our fault we're just you know we're smashed but perspective yeah. and you just it never falls into your realm so you don't think about it that's right like I guess a little like your story really like you hadn't lived a life where you'd been unwell and yeah as you said three years before you'd You've been looking at a new boat and then a year later, yeah, it's just to get out of bed every morning. Exactly. Perspective is just, a, my dad always talks about it, but it's the, it's, it's the one grounding thing. And for, yeah. like I always, I always think, you know, people, and people have different thresholds. So I get, I'm not p- mm. putting down people who complain or have got honest things and, and what might upset yeah. someone is not going to upset me. What might upset me is not going to bother somebody else. We're all different. Mm. Get that. Yep. I just think, you know, a lot of people go straight to complaining uh, and to mm-hmm. and to find a negative perspective first, they kind of thrive on it, and yeah. you know, and I, I, you know, spend the day or spend half an hour in a waiting room at ICU. Don't even go into ICU. Sit in the waiting room with families who are there on the worst day of their lives and seeing what they're going through, and then walk out of that and tell me that your life sucks. Like, yeah. just, I, and I, it sounds cold-hearted almost in a way I don't mean to put down people that are honestly struggling and all the rest of it I just think when you've got perspective it pulls everything into line and maybe yeah maybe helps you to find a little bit of light even when it's pitch black you know I don't don't know that it works for me probably a blanket statement that psychiatrists will pull apart and and, (laughs) look it works for me and perspective having a healthy amount of perspective is just something that it's the the ultimate leveler it's it's absolutely totally grounding so yeah and what does resilience look like for you very very closely linked to perspective I imagine but resilience what's what's that all about for you well I don't know it's a funny thing resilience I don't I don't know if I'm resilient um, at all I think I'm just determined or stubborn I don't know what the words are <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't I can't pat myself on the back and claim resilience I just once you work out what's important and for me that was to just wake up every day for my boy mm. well stuff I'm going to do whatever I need to do and if it's you know some yeah. days are going to hurt 
I get it, yeah. but what's it it's like? It's worth it because then I get to wake up with my boy. Um, I don't know. So resilience, I think, has been a side effect for me, and it's been a result of me just taking each day as it comes and and trying not to think too far ahead. Because if you have to think, like when you're on an artificial heart and you have to think about all these things that you've got to get through, and then oh my god, and then I've got the transplant. If I worried about that every day, my god. I'd go nuts, you know, and you'd never get anything you'd done never either. Get out of bed, and even like yep. you know, you, you know what it's like with anti-rejection tablets. They're, they're, we're on it for the rest of our lives. It's not fun, mm. you know. Yeah. I feel sick most days, most mornings. There are side effects. There are things that you can't do. There are, you know, it's it's you don't you you never wake up feeling just ah could take on the world. I mean, I do, yep. but there's always that level of something. But if I focused on that only. God, what a miserable bugger I'd be. Like I'd just, yep. if all I did was talk about <laughs> feeling feeling nauseous because, you know, you've got to take, you know, a thousand tablets a month or whatever it is, yep. like, oh, my God, I'd be a boring bugger to yeah. be around. Like I don't want to be that. So, yeah, I don't know. Resilience is, I think, once you've, resilience just comes as a result of having something that you're working for and, um, and knowing why you're getting up every day. Um, yeah resilience is just a side effect or you know a byproduct of that it comes you know I'm, I'm maybe you could say I'm resilient because I'm still here but I'm not I'm here because I've got a beautiful heart I'm here because of the incredible team yes I've got a positive attitude um but some days I didn't some days I you know this is serious there's been days that I've spent in tears and I'm not afraid yeah. to say it never yeah you know, never depressed or upset, just can't control, don't know where this sadness is coming from. I don't know. Um, oh, God. So it's, yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, resilience is it, it's something that, uh, yeah, I know I'm talking over myself now. No. But it, it's, it's more no, of a it makes... byproduct. I don't set out to be resilient. I set out to yep. wake up every day. That's it. Yep. And I think that's a beautiful way of putting it, really, to be honest. It's a confusing way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. It is it is a pure side effect of, of what a lot of transplant recipients go through because they don't know how to live a life any other way. That's right. That's right. And so it's just resilience just stems from that. And especially people with congenital um, conditions. You know, they've lived with this all their life. I mean, these are the toughest yep. people. You talk about tough cookie. My God, you're, you're in a position where you're going to be able to talk to these people. You know yourself from experience. Um that's that's the toughness, like having that mental grit to be able to dig in and do that every every day, every day, every day, and that's all you know. You know, me, I'm a fairly new member to the club, so you know, it is what it is, and and if that's what it, that's what I've got to do to wake up tomorrow, that's what I've got to do. But the yeah. the oh my god, the aptitude that that has got people with those congenital diseases and conditions that have had multiple things um, over the years, yeah, that's wow, that's tough cookie right there. My good. Yeah. And Jaden, what's next? Um, tomorrow. <laughs> wake up <laughs> tomorrow. I'm planning to wake up tomorrow. Um, but you know, I've got. I'm shooting the new Donate Life campaign in a couple of weeks that will be ready mm -hmm. for Donate Life Week again this year. So we shot last year's Fantastic. one, which was which was a great opportunity. And um, that last last year's one was very. I, I wrote that script three weeks after my transplant so it came from a very personal mm. place and if I'm honest it was quite a self-indulgent piece it was just it was it was all about gratitude and it was you know mm. if I could talk to my donor what would I say and I just I got my message out 
through the mouths of other people waiting for organs. So it was a very cathartic, very emotional um, thing to do. In the last 12 months, I've been so fortunate to meet a lot of donor families um, and to hear the stories and, and to become involved in that. So I think the real heart of this message is the donor side of the story. And the one true feeling that has been amplified throughout all of the people that I've met when they talk about their loved ones is this feeling of pride and the, the way that they talk about it and, and the lives that those people saved. And, um, you know, for me, they are true heroes. They are absolutely, you don't get any more. I mean, the, the concept of a hero is someone who is brave, someone who saved lives. I mean, hello. Um, yeah. You know, you don't need to wear a cape. These people say some of these people save, you can save up to 10 lives. You know, by, by registering and, and supporting your family members, 10 lives, plus improve the lives of countless others. It's such an amazing thing. So and I'm it's really. Not just, it's not just the recipient. Like if you look at the saving the life, yes, it's just, and I'm, just is not the word I'm looking for, but just a recipient. You look at, in your circumstance, your sister, your your son. Yeah, exactly. Like they've still got you here because of that donor. Oh, look, I think people don't understand that either. It's not. It's the ripple effect that comes from absolutely. A donation. Just been giving these second chances to do things, and you know, like it's it's funny, poetic, and um, I I got to take my heart home on Valentine's Day last year, uh, and I've been single for a long time, and uh, and it's a and, and I I love being single, and it's fine and everything, but you know. Then at the end of last year, I met this incredible girl. And, um, you know, so I feel that's kind of the last part of this journey. I've now been able to fill this heart with, it's just full of love. I love my family and I, you know, I love my son just unconditionally, um, you know, and, and the last little piece of the puzzle, I don't know, it's, um, I wasn't looking for it. It just happened. And, yeah. you know, it's, so that's my future. I've got lots of campaigns and things that I'm working on. I'm doing a, um, a trip next year with uh, Alan Turner from Zadie's Rainbow Foundation and we're driving around Australia over 40 days doing 16,500 kilometres uh, talking about organ donation, media and personalities and parliament and all sorts of stuff. So that's going to be a wonderful trip. Um, Fantastic. Set up a, a foundation called the Forever Grateful uh, Foundation non-profit and, and that's, that's we're looking at. Uh, like I'm working on a bunch of things, um, kiosks yeah. for retail and hospitality and for hospitals and things where you can just swipe your Medicare card or enter your details quickly um, and, you know, working on various campaigns and things, looking at doing some stuff with corporate Australia as well. So that's mm -hmm. kind of ticking away and, um, you know, and I've got screenplay which is, uh, you know, which uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely get up, um, got a lot of interest in and, and I'm, we're just honing it and I'm co-writing it with a with a wonderful beautiful writer at the moment um uh, a, a beautiful uh, indigenous writer and and she's wonderful and we've we've created because the thing that i love about organ donation is just the, it's the one thing that you can say that transcends you know color and race and creed and Absolutely. class and even gender you know it's something that yeah. it is the one true equaler and and um you know i could have got the heart from anyone obviously it had to match my size and blood group but I love yeah. that and I love thinking about that and I just love it it's the one true thing that really shows down underneath that layer of skin we are all the same and yeah. I think the world needs that story at the moment as well and it's a perfect example of that it just personifies 
or exemplifies everything that is just pure and wonderful about humanity. Um, so that's just such a good story to tell. So we're, we're, we're fine-tuning that story at the moment and, and I'll keep working on that. But, you know, my, my life is about saying thank you. I'll keep living it to the best that I, to the best that I can, making hopefully sensible choices, being there for my boy, um, listening to him play Metallica at six o'clock in the morning, all the good things in life <laughs> on his electric guitar. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful, there's a lot of things to look forward to, but you know, I, I know the journey that we're on also as transplant patients and I know, uh, you know, what happens and, you know, and it's a constant upkeep, like we were talking before we came on air about, um, you know what it's like having spare parts you know well like anything things go wrong um, we know a lot of people that are that have got you know that are things that you know they, they break after a while um, yeah. and again we we all know if we've got our own personal stories about that um, I'm acutely aware of things like that so I don't take anything for granted you know and I'm still in the hospital regularly I had an angiogram this week um just checking on things I have another biopsy in a couple of weeks I'm back in the clinic you know it's a maintenance it's it's a I'm I'm, yeah. I'm high maintenance now um and I, I wear <laughs> that badge proudly <laughs> hopefully not in a relationship but you know I don't know I can't speak for that <laughs> <laughs> I think no, I can't speak for that. I'm high maintenance in a relationship too, just because I'm a nutter. I've always got <laughs> not a million at all. Can't not at all. Page. I think <laughs> exactly. I think I think that might be the but either the creative side or the transplant side because I live a very similar life where <laughs> I just can't sit still for five seconds straight. Yeah. See now we've got um, we've got double dose, you and I. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I've gone down your path with COVID, and I've taken up baking uh, not on the, <laughs> the sweet things because my god that would be my downfall but um baking bread so now i've you know i've porked up like a german sausage and it's uh, there's <laughs> I, need, I need to lose some weight before i see my professors again <laughs> so covid has not been kind to my weight line uh, waistline i think <laughs> but but I don't think that the, the transplant side of things has anything to do with that i think <laughs> a lot of people are in the exact same situation as i'm you. weak I, patricia sort of, i'm weak a lot of people need to, um, sadly, find that they need to socially distance from, not from other people, but maybe from their fridge. I need to socially distance from my kitchen completely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and from carbs. Oh, no. The sweetest gift may not have a future after COVID because of this. <laughs> sweetest gift will always have a future. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Jaden. And thank you for telling your story. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, we've spoken to a few people who have had things pop up randomly, but yours is absolutely amazing. You've you've truly beaten the odds and you are an absolute tough cookie. uh, Thank you so, so much. I've had a crack, but uh, it's really lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much, Patricia. No, thank you. And thank you guys all for listening today. Um, This has been another episode of The Tough Cookie. We'll be back next Thursday with another amazing guest. Um, Thank you again for listening and we'll see you soon. Stay sweet, stay healthy and stay safe. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Tough Cookie Podcast. To find out more about The Sweetest Gift, go to www.thesweetestgift.org.au. Thank you for joining us on the Tough Cookie Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please join us next Thursday for another amazing story of hope, resilience and really overcoming the odds. Thanks. Bye.